Our scripture today comes from Luke's gospel, the 16th chapter, verses 1 through 8. Hear the word of God. Then Jesus said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. And then the manager said to himself, what will I do now? Now that my master is taking the position away from me and my, I'm not strong enough to dig, I'm ashamed to beg, I've decided what to do so that when I'm dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? He answered, a hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 50. Then he asked another, and how much do you owe? And he replied, a hundred containers of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and make it 80. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. By your grace and through your mercy, we pray, O Lord, that you will allow these words to come to point to the word just read and to the word made flesh in Jesus the Christ, where we pray this in his name. Amen. There are some things that Jesus says that I don't like. There are some things that Jesus says that I'm not really sure I understand. And there are some things that Jesus says that I don't think I want to understand. For example, when Jesus says that I should forgive my brother or sister, not seven times, but 70 times seven, I'm not sure I like that. My gut reaction says that he's just asking too much. He's pushing things past a reasonable limit, stretching me past practicality. It's just too much work. When Jesus says, love your enemy, I don't think I like that either. I'm not sure what it means, actually. What, What kind of love am I supposed to have for my enemy? Is it the same love I have for my best friend? How do I know that I'm being sincere in my love for my enemy? I don't understand this teaching And frankly, I'm not sure I want to. When Jesus says, don't be anxious about tomorrow, it doesn't take but a second for me to dismiss that right out of hand. Yeah, right, I'm not going to be anxious about tomorrow. Next thing you're going to ask is for me not to root root for Michigan against Ohio State. (laughs) That's just not going to happen. There's just not a second's thought. I give to this idea that I'm not supposed to be anxious about tomorrow. And I look at all these teachings of Jesus sort of like a jigsaw puzzle. And I hate jigsaw puzzles. I don't have the time. I don't have the energy. I don't have the patience to sit there and try to figure these puzzles out. What I do is I take the puzzle pieces and I put them back in the box. I don't understand it. I don't want to understand it. And I don't want to take the time to understand it. 
So when Jesus tells the story about the rich man who has a man who manages his accounts and he decides to let him go because he's playing funny with the books, well, I can understand that. And when this crooked manager then turns around and starts cooking the books even more in order to, you know, pad his pocket for a better future for himself, I don't like it, but I can understand it. And then when the owner, at the end of the story, congratulates the accountant, the corrupt accountant, and says, well, you got to hand it to the guy, at least he's being creative. That's what I can't understand. I thought Jesus was a fan of honesty and integrity, and now he seems to be applauding the guy who's on his way to prison. I don't understand it, and I don't think I want to take the time to understand it. But, because the lectionary, which is those readings that we are assigned each week, the gospel text is this text, and I'm the preacher, it means I have to keep the puzzle on the table. I have to explore to see what in heaven's name is Jesus trying to say here. I hate it when Jesus makes me work. <laughs> but since I work one day a week, I suppose I shouldn't complain. So while working the puzzle, one of the things I come to remember when I give myself a chance to think about it is that Jesus often teaches with superlatives, exaggerations, to make a point. When Jesus says, for example, that if your right hand causes you to sin, you should cut it off, well, he's making a point, right? He's making a point that we should take sin seriously. He does not want us to cut off our hand. When he tells us to have faith so as to move mountains, he's not expecting us to be landscape engineers. He wants us to have an unflagging faith. So when Jesus gives a shout out to the dishonest manager, he's not cheering dishonesty. He's applauding creativity. The, the Greek word is phronimus which means wise, crafty, thoughtful, shrewd, creative. At least, Jesus says, this guy is being wise, crafty, thoughtful, creative, shrewd. Not much else to say about him. He should be going to jail. But at least he was creative. Jesus tells the story a little bit differently in another gospel when he tells about the owner who hands out a certain amount of money and to his servants, and he tells them to take care of it while he's gone, and the guy with $5,000 plays the market, doubles down on penny stocks and doubles his money. The guy with $2,000 buys, let's say, some speculative real estate and, and ends up making twice as much. And the guy with $1,000 plays it safe, takes the master's money, puts it under his mattress. And the owner says, well, I like those first two guys. I like those guys who play close to the edge. I like those guys who don't mind gambling with my money. And because I'm a money under the mattress kind of guy, because I'm looking at those guys who are just gambling the money, I'm thinking, what happens if they lost it? Which means I'm at risk of losing the point of the story. Because the point of the story is the master is looking for someone to be creative with what he's been given, with what the master has given. 
take some risks, double down. Which helps me to understand the story that Jesus tells a couple of chapters earlier in Luke. Laurie preached on this a few weeks ago about the man who, who does so well with his crops that he just keeps building bigger and bigger and bigger barns in which to store them. And Jesus says, oh, how uncreative. Think of what you could have done. Think of what you could have done with that 401k. Think of what you could have done with all that hay. And now, I'm seeing this puzzle come together. And now, all of a sudden, it's as plain as the nose on my face because it all forms a picture that goes all the way back to the beginning when at the beginning we hear the first words about God, and God, we're told, is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is the creator of the birds and the bees. He is the creator of the plants and the animals, the moon and the stars, the man and the woman, this whole amazing universe that parades in front of us every day, this amazing ecosystem of life that we get to dance in and bask in and take care of. Oh, no, that God isn't happy just with one flower. God wants billions of them. He's not happy with one star. God wants billions of them. God isn't happy with one species of animal. He wants thousands of them, not just one tree, but a million billion of them, not just one bird, but a million birds. This is who God is. And God creates the world and leaves God's imprint upon us. God creates us to be creators. Not just two humans, oh no, not just two humans, but two humans that make more humans. Not just one tree, but tree that makes seeds that make trees. Not just two chickens, but a rooster and a hen that make eggs that make chickens. Not just one snake, well, he should have stuck with one snake. Be fruitful, Jesus says, and multiply. It's what God says to the first human beings. Keep on making this world into the more and more beautiful thing that I got started. Be creative with what I've given you. And now it's starting to make some sense. It's kind of like God gives each one of us our very own seed supply. And God says, let's see what you do with it. We're all born with a sack of seed, right? We're all born with a variety of seed, a variety of brains, of talent, personality, opportunity, education. We have this seed bag we're carrying around with all different kinds of seed. And the adventure of life, the calling of life, the, the purpose of life is what you do with your seed. Do you keep it or do you sow it? Do you start gardens? Or do you build bigger barns? Makes me think of John Chapman. You know who John Chapman was. Yes, you do. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands. John Chapman was the guy back in the 18th century who was a nurseryman, a, a man who grew and tended trees, and he decided that one nursery wasn't enough. There needed to be more nurseries, lots of trees, so he started walking around the Midwest planting nurseries, trees and trees and trees, apple trees in particular. John Chapman loved his apple trees and his apple seeds so much they called him Johnny Appleseed, who went from town to town to town planting apple seeds that would grow into apple trees. 
because that's what you do with apple seed. You sow them, you grow them, so that you get apples to eat and seed to plant. I suppose that's why Jesus keeps talking about seed, 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 seed. The sower and the seed, the mustard seed that becomes the biggest bush, the seed that falls to the ground and dies before it can bring new life, seed, 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 seed. And in essence, he's throwing this sack of seed on our shoulders and says, it's time to plant, time to sow, time to tear down those barns and put that hay to work. Makes me think of a garden I learned of a while back, the Arctic Alpine Botanic Garden, and it's where you think it might be. It is in the northernmost public, it is the northernmost public garden in the world in the northern reaches of Norway, on parallel with northern Alaska. A picture of it is on the front of your bulletin. It's got thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of flowers, all kinds of flowers from all over the world. Oh, just for a short season, it flowers and it blooms and it dances and it smells and it pollinates and it puts on a show for anybody who wants to come by, free of charge. And I wanna know who got that brilliant idea? Who got the idea to throw seed there? To take the risk to throw seed where seed doesn't normally grow. To invest in a garden where gardens don't normally grow. It's like putting money on a penny stock. Oh, but the payoff, double your money. Makes me think of Shane Claiborne, a young college student in Philadelphia who started reading the Bible and started letting these hard teachings of Jesus, you know, these hard to understand teachings of Jesus, these easy to ignore statements of Jesus, started letting them, instead of putting them back in the box, started letting them germinate. And he wondered what life would look like if you took Jesus at his word and you actually tried to do what Jesus said you should do. And they started this movement called Red Letter Christians. Red Letter Christians are folks that try to take seriously the red letters of the Bible. You know, you've got those Bibles, you've got the red letter edition, you know, which is all the words of Jesus. Try to let the red letters of the Bible, the words that Jesus spoke, and try to apply them to their lives. So they found, one of, they found one of the hardest places to live in Philadelphia, a very, very difficult neighborhood, and they grew a garden. And they grew a little garden so they could sustain themselves because they chose to move into the neighborhood and then also then to feed the neighborhood. And the garden grew into a ministry and the ministry grew into a changed neighborhood. And it was as crazy as planting a garden in the Arctic Circle. If things grow in the Arctic Circle, you just have to be creative. You've got to find a way to use your seed because what shame it would be to end up at the pearly gates with a bag full of seed, a bag full of uh, forgiveness that you've never extended, a bag full of love that you held back from your enemy, a bag full of justice, a bag full of kindness, a bag full of money you kept to the end. 
Wouldn't it be great if there was a board game? I like board games a lot more than I like puzzles. And the winner is the one who used up all her seed. The winner is the one who, who planted the most gardens. Because I suppose it's the message that Jesus keeps teaching over and over and over again that the great secret to life, the great purpose to the game is to figure out what to do with your seed bag. Do you store it or do you sow it? What are you planning to do as you walk through, like Johnny Appleseed, this troubled, troubled world? Do you shake your head, hold on to your seed? Or do you start planting? In Arctic circles, in stressed neighborhoods, in disadvantaged people, in rocky soil, in the people in your life who need an extra measure of grace from you, in the people in your life who need an extra measure of unconditional love. Isn't it funny that the answer to the world lies right in the bag we're carrying? Which makes me think of the man who was walking down the sidewalk in the middle of a large urban city and noticed a woman tending to a garden where once a vacant and abandoned and ugly lot once stood. And the man called out to the woman, that's some garden you and God have created? To which the woman replied, yeah, well, you should have seen it when God had it by himself. <laughs> All those brains he's given us. All those talents he's given us. All those 401ks. All those friends. All those, all that time. All the opportunity. All that education. All that seed. And the good Lord just is waiting to see what gardens will grow.